0: You're listening to the Opportunity Zones and Private Equity Show. Listen in for news and insights on how Opportunity Zones, private equity funds, and private real estate can help you grow your wealth. Now, here's your host, Jimmy Atkinson. Welcome to the Opportunity Zones and Private Equity Show. I'm Jimmy Atkinson. Today on the podcast, we'll be talking cold storage and the growing market opportunity for this unique real estate sector. And joining me today to discuss this topic and more is Chad DeBolt, Managing Director and Principal at Saksim Real Estate. And Chad joins us today from Austin, Texas. Chad, great to see you. Thanks for coming on the show. How are you doing?
1: Doing great, Jimmy. Thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely, Chad. And in addition to... uh, your role at uh, Saxum. You're also a fellow domer like myself. Uh, you're a two-sport athlete at uh, Notre Dame. So always great to connect with uh, a fellow Notre Dame fighting Irishman, so to speak.
1: Go Irish. Thanks for having me, Jimmy. Al- I do Al- appreciate
0: it. Absolutely. Go Irish. Hey, Chad, I'm guessing that um, a lot of my audience of high net worth investors and advisors may be somewhat familiar already with Saxum Real Estate uh, from uh, from the different opportunity zone deals that you've been involved with. Um, we've covered you guys a couple of times on the podcast and and in our news articles over the years. But for those who may be unfamiliar, can you tell us a little bit more about Saxum and what is your role there?
1: Absolutely. Saxum is a vertically integrated uh, real estate investment development company. We're about nine years old now. I joined about seven years ago. I was really the second guy in and and the company has really just been an impressive growth story. We've really been able to scale it over the last really seven years has been a lot of the growth. We have about 37 teammates now uh, spanning two offices between Austin and some in New Jersey. We have seven teammates down in Austin, we have 30 up in New Jersey. And really our goal is to create a, you know, our goal was to create, and is to create a vertically integrated network of, uh, you know, investment development company. Um, and we really focus on industrial and multifamily assets. Those are our main focuses. Um, when we look at the multifamily vertical, we really consider it housing as we do have about 4,000 beds of student housing uh, as well. But uh, it's really allowed us to, to find a unique uh, way to make an impact on the real estate uh, commercial side of the equation because A, we do raise funds. We are a hybrid. We, we're private equity in regards. We have multi-asset funds. We do single asset deals as well. But at the same time, we truly are sponsors. So we are the sponsors of the deal, executing cradle-to-grave deals um, across our entire platform. And, and when you really think of that, we have a 12-person development construction team. We have in-house legal, three full-time attorneys. We have six-person acquisition team and then asset management operations, you name it. So there's a number of different things we have going on. And it allows us to really wrap our arms around deals to manage risk, to execute on budget on time, to really find unique opportunities uh, across the nation.
0: So you're done doing quite a bit of real estate work across a variety of different property types, different sectors. Uh, Today, we're going to be specifically diving into cold storage. I'm really looking forward to that conversation. But before we get going there, I wanted to zoom out and discuss the view from 30,000 feet. Uh, You know, seeing as how Saxum, I think Saxum and and you, Chad, are are leaders in the commercial real estate industry, what are some of the most powerful trends that you see playing out over the next few years across that commercial real estate landscape?
1: Sure thing. I, I think... You know, the commercial real estate market as, again, all markets go in cycles. Uh, For anyone that's been in the market at least 15 years, you'd have lived through the great, uh, you know, great recession back in uh, 08, 09 and 10, what have you. And one thing about real estate that is interesting, a lot of people are talking about now is real estate's a lagging asset class. And by lagging, that means that uh, you can't sell it uh, by pushing a button. It takes time. And asset classes that are more illiquid because of that reason, they typically take longer to reprice. So while you see that the stock market has been volatile, and especially more of the rates market has been very volatile, um, real estate is, is feeling those movements. But at the same time, um, it usually takes longer to play out. So just to give a data point, real estate didn't really bottom out to 2010 and 11 uh, back, you know, again, 13, 14 years ago. And the stock market, the S&P 500 actually hit a bottom on March 9, 2009. I remember the exact day because actually my birthday it was six sixty seven, which is crazy to think of when we're in the 1, 000, four thousand range now. That's how beat up the market got. So, it is a very unique um, thing to keep uh, mind of. And I would say, real, it feels like commercial real estate is more in the news this, you know, these days than it was fifteen years ago. Um, and I think when you look at that, it's been mostly focused on um, the moving rates. We we have had the largest rate move in the last twenty years. Um, and as you know, a lot of almost all investments in private equity deal with leverage. So when you look at leverage, rates is an important component. So I would say, in general, from what we've seen, the lending markets have been definitely more difficult than they've been in over a decade. Uh, for almost most deals, um, when we're talking to equity, it's it as is important that the debt is lined up already before equity is really looking to commit on on some of these deals. And this isn't a you know anything unique to Sachs, um Any sponsor would tell you that across the market so I do think that uh, this this will be a choppy market over the next year to 18 months in general um, with with volatility comes opportunity obviously I think um, you know investors out there uh, you know when you're looking at opportunities in real estate uh, you know a lot of pain I think will come from a lot of these larger funds that were buying stabilized assets at extremely low cap rates and then not locking in fixed rate debt and now those are upside down. Um, so we, we've heard a lot about that and it's not uncommon in terms of giving some redemptions and some of the bigger players, what's going on there. Um, so th- that is one thing that will play out, uh, you know, over time. Um, but, you know, on, on our standpoint, which is, which has been healthy, is our portfolio has been in, in general very, fairly clean because um, a lot of our deals are development deals, which are not arguably, uh, you know, delivered right now. Uh, we have some deals that are coming up and most of the deals that are coming up are typically multifamily deals or industrial assets. And that'd be the last point I really make, which is just more big picture. Any investor that's, that's uh, joining the Wealth Channel, that's watching this, that's really trying to figure out how to navigate this crisis, um, the way you have to think about investments now is what assets can push along price increases basically to the end user, or to consumers, Right, so when you when you really think of that, and again, I'm not an expert on the stock market, but I do believe one of the reasons why the stock market has has held in where it is is stock market is partially potentially potentially a uh, protect provides protection against inflation, as companies could pass good companies could pass along costs to consumers, so that is one of the reasons why I think we're in an inflationary and part a market environment, which we are, I think that that's likely to stay over the medium term, which I think most people do, regardless of what the Fed does, um, and I do think we put in a high in inflation, but I don't think we're gonna drop back to sub 2% on, on PCE anytime soon. Um, you know, Those are assets you wanna look at. And when you look at that, the most simple thing, again, this is what we do um, at Saksim, and we do it on purpose because it's fundamentally driven, is we invest in housing and industrial because going into COVID, um, class A multifamily and industrial, were by far the two best performers in commercial real estate coming out of COVID, it's the same deal. So these are asset classes that are very either supply chain driven, mission critical, or uh, with high utility, or again, extremely high utility where people have to live somewhere um, in terms of rentals. And as you know, um, you know, Fed funds and rates are have a positive correlation to actual um, to actual rents in in cases, not when they go up to, you know, inflation at 15, 20%, it's a whole different story. But if you're, uh, a potential homeowner, you're now starting at seven percent mortgage rates um, versus potentially renting. So that equation does matter versus buy versus rent. Um, so, so we've seen large upticks in Class A rents over the last couple of years, uh, in general, multiple double double digit type increase. And again, back to my point before, those are assets where, while cap rates might be higher, while construction costs might be higher, you know, a, a good portion of that could off be be offset potentially more based on the ability to move rents, um, which drives NOI higher.
0: All great thoughts. Uh, And speaking of supply chain critical, you mentioned that term uh, in your previous response a moment ago. Let's shift our focus now for the rest of the episode to cold storage, because I think we've talked about uh, multifamily plenty on this podcast recently, but we haven't talked a lot about cold storage. Want to hear your thoughts on it, Chad, today. Uh, First of all, how did you begin to look into the cold storage industry?
1: Yeah. So really our Saxon's involvement uh, on the real estate side and cold storage, it's really at the, at the heart of how Saxon was formed. The company's always been an entrepreneurial company. We've always looked for unique, you know, unique trends that maybe people are not seeing um, undervalued asset classes, ways to really extract uh, and create unique risk adjusted returns. So through that process, again, being founded originally in Jersey, before we opened our Austin office, Uh, industrial has been one of the largest asset classes in Jersey for a long time. Um, It's not a hidden secret. And we had always known that. We always thought it was interesting, but we never played in the space at the time because we had no edge and we don't do things when we don't have an edge. And uh, you know, you're dealing with the prologists and the Dukes of the world, very large companies publicly traded, much lower cost of capital than we have. It's hard to beat them. And if you do on an asset, you're probably overpaying and we don't play that game either. So so for us, when we started to look at ways to get an industrial um, and, and as we did homework and just look for interesting ideas, and similar like you mentioned earlier on opportunity zones, that's what we fell across that, something that came along our way. We did a lot of homework, we've done 10 Oz deals to date. So again, not too different from opportunity zones. when we start to look at cold storage uh, in general, um, we just thought it was almost, it was very surprising to us of how fragmented it and untapped of a, an asset class it was. And to really understand it is when you look at cold storage, cold storage represents less than 2% of all industrial assets. So if you want to talk about a niche play in industrial, it is the play in industrial. It's not even debatable. Um, and there's a number of reasons you know, why that happens. And, and when you dig in and from a real estate lens, you start to peel the onion back. The average age of a cold storage building is 42 years old. So we're talking old buildings, low clear heights, a lot of inefficiencies. These are triple net leases, and which means a number of those expenses are pushed on to tenants. Well, if you have an old building with beat up insulation, cracks, a lot of, you, you can think about a number of inefficiencies. If you're a tenant, that, a lot of that gets pushed on to you in some cases. So it was just shocking to us that this had not been built out. And the one of the main reasons for that is arguably twofold. First off, the cost of cold storage typically is at least 50% to double of dry. Uh, And as I mentioned, if you're a big company, a publicly traded industrial company, the low hanging fruit is to build dry industrial buildings, nine months build, rinse repeat, millions and millions of square feet, 98% of the market. No problem. The harder trade is to roll up your sleeves and dig into a market like cold storage, which costs double the cost of, you know, in general, 50% to double the cost of dry. It's difficult to build you have very complicated refrigeration systems, heavy insulation, it's very unique. And uh, and it takes more time to build. So you're not realizing uh, p- potential promotes as fast as maybe on other deals. And again, that's what something Saxon does is we look at unique ways to, to extract value. We're willing to put in more time and work if it makes sense. So that was something that was really interesting to us. The other thing is the supply, You know, the vacancy rates in cold storage are sub 2%. And that was really unique to us because when you when you look at it, there wasn't a ton of supply of cold storage um, going back to pre-COVID when we started to look at this. So, um, you know, when you look at it, a lot of developments in cold storage, typically in the past, they've been built to suits. And what that means is uh, a company needs space. They're not developers. They don't want to build the building. Um, they might not really want to own the building. They might sign a lease, uh, pre-lease on a building, and they want a developer to build it. When that happens, there's no supply because the building's automatically put away. So that's another thing that we thought was just unique. Very limited, uh, you know, very limited supply, very low vacancy rates, very arcane, fragmented uh, business. And, and when we started to look at this, I'd like to say we're uh, amazing investors. I think we're pretty good, but we, you know, we could always get better every day, like anyone. Um, but better to be a little lucky than good. We started to look at cold storage pre-cooked and it's a little, there's a lot of money more in quarterbacks out there now that are now looking at it, but we really built the second fully hundred percent spec development uh development uh, in the nation to be built, um, which we broke ground on be- before COVID uh, in the Fort Worth market. So um, so yeah, that's how we got turned on the sector and, and really kind of went off to the races after that.
0: So you were in the right place at the right time and COVID accelerated the demand for cold storage. W- what, what What do you see as the primary demand and supply drivers that are affecting this industry
1: yeah. And, and again, I, I do think when, you know, when I talk to our investors, I do think sometimes the best investments out there are, are sometimes the easiest to understand. And, that, and, and that's sometimes why they're overlooked. And when we really dug back into the fundamentals of why you want to invest in something. So, you know, the fundamentals, the demand side of the equation is, again, it, it's almost very obvious. Right when we looked again pre-COVID, we thought this made sense to build the second 100% spec building to be done in the nation, which was a 4,000 square foot building, and that was purely off the fact that um, you know when you look at it, the asset class was very old, as we said, right? So there's a lot of arcane buildings and there's limited supply. But when we looked at the demand, it was just so interesting. And from that, again, Amazon's been around for you know we're talking 20 years plus at this point. E-commerce is not something that's not understood at this time. I still think the numbers are extremely low, even for Amazon of what e commerce is of which what it will be over time. When you look at it, actual perishable food demand pre COVID about 20% of consumers ordered food online. And I'm not talking about like, you know, restaurants I'm talking about groceries. So again, we thought at 20% with some, you know, healthy increases, there'd be a tremendous amount of potential demand from that alone. And then, um, in addition to that, what was really interesting on the demand side was the fact of this entire health movement in our country, and not just the country, the world. Right? I grew up in the '80s, and in the '80s, God knows what was in some of the food that I ate. When you look at you know food like pop tarts and what have you, but um, you know but when you look at and it the now, food,
0: also the food pyramid was telling us to eat like 12 <laughs> servings of uh, grains every day, or something ridiculous like that, too, right?
1: Exactly. Is it was heavy on pasta? You know? Yeah, so, exactly. Uh, yeah, I got some Italian roots to myself. There's a lot of pasta going around uh, at our house. So, exactly. Um, so when you look at that now, it's almost common place to say everyone wants their kids and their family to have healthier food and live longer lives. And what that means is most consumers don't want food that lives on a shelf for over six months. Mm-hmm. And what does that mean? Well, it means something very simple. It means that you have to remove a number of the preservatives from food that allow it to live that long on a shelf. And when you do that, um, it means that, well, food doesn't last as long. So the only way for this food supply chain to basically manage that is to chill or freeze the food, period. There's no debates. So like when we looked at that, it just, again, very fundamental drivers on the demand side of the equation. And I would tell you, again, better to be lucky than good, that consumer number of online sales now is 70% of consumers. Order perishable food online at, in, in some facet. So we never expected that again to happen that quickly. COVID just exploded and added you know, a number of tailwinds to the sector, right? So, so that's that. And then on the supply side, and I talked about a little bit earlier, given how low the vacancies are, sub two percent, you have this very arcane, you know, national network of, of older buildings that really are out there. You know, in our view, is, again, we're developers. And our head, head of construction has uh, numbers of years um, you know, of, of experience building cold storage. We looked at it as ability as, hey, we think we could build this. We think we could build it on budget on time. And we think there will be a lot of demand for, for new buildings. So that's why, you know, to bring a full circle, that's why we felt comfortable breaking ground on 100% spec building pre-COVID. Um, and now the market has become, you know, even more interesting since then.
0: Yeah, you had some tailwinds at your back pre-COVID, and now it's really accelerated with the behavioral changes that consumers have undertaken uh, in in response to the pandemic. Uh, so I'm imagining these cold storage facilities. There's uh, perishable food, grocery type stuff. Maybe I'm um, thinking maybe prescription medication that needs to be kept cold or, or frozen. Or uh, what what else is there in these facilities? Who are the tenants that are most active? uh, in, in this space.
1: Yeah, it's, 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 it's been fascinating. I always, I always kind of joke about it. I love food just personally. I, I, I love thinking of food and different types of food. And I never growing up, I never would, uh, want to work at a restaurant. I do much other, you know, different manual labor type jobs. Cause I didn't want to see how they made the food. Mm. But I managed to work my way into the food business on the storage side, which is exciting. So it's been really fascinating to learn about it. And like the food supply chain, People in our world, frankly, we just take for granted the fact that you could go to the store and get a a fresh avocado. Like 20, 30 years ago, that was not like that. You know, when you think of seasonal fruits and vegetables, like it's just, again, things that we've been spoiled with over time that are very complex. They're very driven. There's so much science and just technology behind it that we all just take for granted in our daily lives. And when you really start to look at it from a logistics lens, it is just really wild. Um, You know, so, you know, I guess before I describe like some of those specific companies, I think like, you know, one way I want to answer the question to start is there's two types of really users when you think of cold storage. So again, Saxon builds the real estate where we build cold storage buildings, right? And on the real estate side, for obviously owners of buildings, it's really important to us to know who those tenants are. And really, the type of tenants that exist are twofold. There's direct users, and then there's Three PLs, which are called third-party logistics providers. When you think of direct users, think of it as this: think of the WalMarts, you know, the Targets of the world, um, potentially like the Heinz's or the Canagras—big, massive food companies that are out there, right? And some of these companies—they are arguably logistics companies. They own a bunch of their own warehouses. They run their own warehouses. They know what they're doing. In some cases, though, like for example, Amazon, for example, some markets they grow so fast they just run out of space. And they can't even wait the nine to 12 months to build another building. So they lease space. And if Saxon owns a building and uh, pretend Amazon run, runs out of space in a market and they want to lease space, they come to us, they sign a lease, and then they run the warehouse themselves. Again, we do nothing. They know how to run the warehouse. They know how to man the warehouse. Um, and again, they're logistics experts, period. That's about 20% of the tenants in the market. Big, large, massive companies that a lot of us would know that have some type of need for, for refrigeration. On the, the other 80% side of the equation, when you think of these 3PLs, really when you think of third-party logistics provider, think of like co-working. You know, if we have a 4,000 square foot building, you might have a 3PL, right, that would lease, say, 200,000 square foot of the space. When you convert that to pallet positions, which is, you know, the l- lingo for obviously logistics, it's about 25,000 power positions, give or take. So we might have a... 3PL that says, hey, we want to lease your, two, you know, half of your building. Um, and what they do is they make money two ways. They make money typically off storage, and that means they lease from us at X price per pallet, which they then release at a higher price, just again, like co-working, not too dissimilar. But then there's a large amount of costs and fees, which is interesting, especially specific to food when it comes to handling, or it might be blast freezing or case picking or cross docking. All these unique things that might be specific to food, um, you know, a quality control of the food. Is it at the right temperatures? Are we checking that? All those things, right? And there's all those services that arguably, you know, have to happen. Um, and that's what a 3PL does, right? So a 3PL, in this example, I gave you 25,000 pallets. They might have 100 clients that uh, pay, uh, that need 250 uh, pallets of storage annually. And those pallets are in and out, right? There's movement. There's obviously velocity the movement of those pallets. But those are like a way to think of those customers. And to give even a further example to help uh, you know, tell everyone out there learning and listening to this, um, and I'll use ice cream because I love ice cream. Ice cream uh, is basically stored at minus 20 degrees. Produce is 38 degrees to give you an idea of the bandwidth of these facilities. You might be, pretend you're an ice cream company, a uh, franchise that has 20 retail stores. All you might care about is every other Wednesday, you want a pallet of ice cream to show up at every facility. And that's all you care about. You don't want to lease an uh, industrial warehouse. You don't want to own a warehouse. You don't want to operate a warehouse. And by the way, you might not even want to deal with the transportation of your goods from the warehouse to your 20 retail stores. That's exactly what a 3PL does. There, and there's thousands, millions, arguably, of these, these ice cream companies that want to outsource the logistics because that's not their daily blocking and ca- tackling. So that's what, um, you know, and that's where, you know, we've uh, been involved as well on the 3PL side, you know, of the equation. And when you think of other companies, to answer your initial question, when you dig in, French fry companies, protein companies, protein can be chicken, you know, what have you, seafood, you name it, um, produce companies, pet food companies. Um, are very interesting as well that need to store the food, which basically it might be a distributor that's storing food that they might sell to a processor that chops up all the meat and then refines it to their end product. So there's all these unique supply chains within the food market, which are just fascinating. Uh, and one thing to just bifurcate is this, I do get questions a lot about vaccines. Do we mm-hmm. store vaccines just given that we're coming out of a pandemic? And just one unique thing to note about that is most pharma companies will basically store that themselves. It becomes difficult as well because a lot of those vaccines have to be stored really at over minus 100 degrees. So, the refrigerant system for minus 100 and lower is different than a refrigerant system that could go minus 20 to 38. So, another way to say that is if I'm a developer building specs, calculative space, and it's not a built to suit for a XYZ pharma company, it's pretty risky. You have a very low customer uh, audience base to lease that space. So that's not typically something that we focus on.
0: You're doing food and only food, basically. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I'd say heavy on food and uh, human animals, <laughs> food. Like I said the pet food companies, you name it. I mean, heck, some of these pet food, the way treat, people treat their animals these days, I think humans could eat some of this pet food, frankly. Probably, but, yeah. Uh, that's a whole other story. <laughs> but uh, how healthy the the whole humanization of animals, which, you know, I have two dogs. Uh, I understand it and get it. But it's it's a real thing. It's very interesting.
0: Yeah, I'll bet. Well, we won't go down that rabbit hole any further, but uh, maybe save it for next time. Well, so this uh, incredible market opportunity here with cold storage, a lot of tailwinds. Has it gotten really competitive? What does your competitive landscape look like across this uh, this industry?
1: Yeah, I mean, when you really look at it, which is what's really interesting, is that it is a growth market, right? And I think again, as investors, you, you want to look at products where you could where there's pricing power. Prices could be passed along to the to the end user. That's that's critical. But you also want to look for markets that are actually growing, and there's increasing you know demand um, for the overall you know universe. And when you look at it, um, it, it it is it is extremely interesting. There's about 350 million square feet. If you look at like actual in place. Um, product in cold storage, we expect that to really grow to over 500 over the next decade, 500 million square feet. So like these numbers, this is the growth market. There's a lot of tailwinds for the reasons we already talked about before, you know, into the space. What becomes so interesting is this. Remember I said about 20% of the market are these end users, the big, large, large, logistic Amazon target type companies, right? And again, they kind of do their own thing, right? So if you put them aside for a second, you basically say, well, what's this 80% look like? What's this 3PL market look like? And when you start to look at that, then it becomes even more fascinating. And by that is there's basically three main players that dominate that entire space on, almost, on a national level and pretty close to a global level. It's a little wider than that. But there's three companies, Lineage, AmeriCold, and US Cold. AmeriCold Publicly Trade, the sticker's cold. Anyone can look it up. Lineage is a, is a, is a private company. We look at it, Lineage is the largest player in the world in cold storage 3PL, largest. AmeriCold's is number two. So they control of that 80% of the tenants, right? So 20% direct, 80% 3PLs. Of that 80, those three companies represent about 85% of the space and activity. So it's, it's extremely interesting. And my analogy would be this is when you think about it, is it's almost like the car dealership market on a national level. And, and I'll explain, like, if you think of car dealership, there are a number of auto REITs, companies that, you know, uh, real, estate, uh, right, real estate investment trusts, yep. separate trusts, they go and buy car dealerships from families typically, and they do sales leasebacks. You know, they give them 20 year leases, the, the family gets to take out a bunch of money, and then the REIT owns the real estate. But, so there is a business for that, but it still is very niche. Most car dealerships, when you go into national scale, these are family run businesses that are very specific to the geography that they're in. And when you look at cold storage, it's similar. So if you're not the big three, arguably, those big three companies, you're talking, you know, not to say a mom and pop, but, you know, a family that might own three to four cold storage buildings in the Southeast or the Northwest.
0: And that's it. And that's 15% of that. 80% Eighty percent piece of the the pie that isn't the the really big players, the targets, the WalMarts, et cetera. Right?
1: It's wild. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It, and and furthermore, like to take it a step further, when you think of it, Like most big companies, like they 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 like if, if you're an if you're an end company that wants to hire a three PL to outsource your logistics, and, and you're national, you don't want to deal with four different mom and pops in different geographies, of the United States that have different technologies and different systems and different platforms. That's a headache, right? You are looking for national players that are in the space that could really make an impact. Um, and that's the thing. If you could create a national network of cold storage assets, you are, you're immediately unique. And that's it has been pretty wild. And what's happened there is the, the big three, again, the way they grow is they do develop some of their own assets. But frankly, Saxon has more development. Um, again, SACs, we're not the, the size of these guys by by any means. Again, on the real estate side, we develop um, as, as many assets a year as arguably they do on a square footage mm-hmm. basis. So, you know, a lot of their growth, and again, America, it's publicly traded, that has to behold, be, be beholden to shareholders. How do you grow revenues? Well, you grow revenues by acquiring other assets. Because, like I said, it's typically cold storage hasn't been a spec asset class, which, again, like on the dry front, there's not a bunch of developers just building it speculatively. Um, for the reason that I said a lot of the space is customized, it wants to be built for specific users. It doesn't exist out there. So the way they've driven growth over time is buying three PLs that have gotten larger over time. Right. And when they, a company gets big enough to, to get purchased, one of those three are typically buy them. Um, and, and it's created this unique uh, dynamic in the market because remember what I said earlier, um, there is the average age of a cold storage building is 42 year old, 42 years old. So if you're a tenant and 85% of the place you could rent space from is likely 42 years old, that's not a great proposition longer term. And then also, and again, you know, this is when you look at those big three, I'm not speaking to anyone specifically, but COVID created a lot of pricing issues with cost of labor, what have you. And there's a lot of price increases that went across the market. I think there are a number of customers out there that had large price increases, probably more than they thought that we're saying, wow, that hurt. I have all my eggs in one supply chain basket. We got to figure out ways to diversify this from a supply chain logistics standpoint, just to protect our own businesses from potential other increases. So there has been, you know, there's this very unique opportunity set to play on the 3PL side of the cold storage space.
0: So are you guys... uh Partnering with three PLs, are they leasing space from you, or are you becoming your own three PL? Help, help, help me understand what what's going on there.
1: Yeah, so so what we're doing on the Saxon side is it's really it's really one main thing again. Saxon's a real estate commercial real estate investment development company, as I described earlier. Our goal really is to build a national network of new construction, highly efficient cold storage assets to really, you know, address this widespread shortage in the, in the cold chain that's out there. And we feel comfortable, A, from a spec side, that there is enough th- demand to actually fill these assets over time, um, given some of the demand variables, you know, I, I mentioned to you. But um, at the same time, you know, which has been unique is, you know, we do have a sister company completely separate from Saxum that's named Arcadia Cold uh, Storage and Logistics. And Arcadia is a 3PL. Um, and it's really unique. And, uh, and that company is run by a guy named Chris Hughes. Chris Hughes uh, is very well-renowned in the cold storage universe. He was, uh, he was at AmeriCold earlier in his career. Again, number two player in the world. And uh, you know what he did was, he had, over time, he worked he as a chief commercial officer at AmeriCold for a number of years, a so very high, high-ranking guy there. He left and he started his own 3PL um, about a decade ago. That company is a company called AgroMerchants. Agro merchants was a roll-up strategy, no different than the big three, like I've described, uh, where they went out and bought a number of um, you know, undervalued assets, both nationally and actually uh, globally as well. They had a number of assets in Latin America and Europe, which is unique. And they rolled up a portfolio and they actually sold it back to AmeriCold at scale for $1.7 billion at the end of 2020. So as you see, there's this roll-up trade that basically keeps happening. So Chris Hughes um, is uh, you know is has put together a first class team of, of operators seasoned veterans in the cold storage universe that uh, that runs Arcadia cold storage and logistics its own completely separate company he's been doing an amazing job there and you know we have a number of facilities that are all public um, that uh, about six so far that are uh, in construction uh, I think five of the six are going to be delivered this year um, and again Saxon is building a number of these buildings so that is so you know, part of the uh, some of the connections there is that the ability to understand that a building can be built on budget on time. That building I mentioned that we built pre-COVID, we broke ground on in DFW second spec building to really be built in the nation. Um, we built that on budget on time during COVID, um, which when you deal with steel, given what happened with uh, steel prices, is almost heard of. So again, a huge uh, huge shout out to our you know development construction team that really executed that, led by Kieran Flanagan on our side. But um, that's what's really been unique, and it's been fun on the Saxon side to watch these guys operate because that's that's not our our daily business. We're real estate developers. We know how to build buildings on budget, on time, and that's what we do. That's our lane, and we stick there. But to see a company like Arcadia grow um, with Chris Hughes you know, leading the charge there, it's it's just been you know fascinating. And there's been a lot of interest from a lot of these uh, potential tenants. Um, that are, you know, again, that are out there and, um, looking to diversify the supply chain, but not even just that there's a lot of tenants that actually just need new space that might not even, you know, have a provider now, like I said, due to a lot of the demand forces that are at play that are growing this, this sector. So again, it's, it's been really unique to watch, um, these guys, um, operate and just really see how that side of the business, you know, really has played out over time.
0: Got it. I'll I'll ask you a little bit more about Arcadia in a few minutes, but uh, bringing it back to Saxum, you just mentioned you're a real estate development firm. Cold storage isn't all that you do. How does this cold storage strategy fit into your overall strategy as a real estate investor at Saxum?
1: Yeah. So it's, again, it is a mission critical strategy for us. Again, two food groups are housing and industrial mentioned earlier you know of the industrial side of the business it's definitely at least half of that business by far um you know quietly we are you know we are the largest uh speculative developer of cold storage in the nation we don't really you know um we don't really you know boast about that we stick in our lane and just keep our head down and work hard but we have uh over a couple you know two and a half million square feet plus of, of development right now across multiple assets not just those first six you know approaching close to nine at the moment frankly Again, a number of those are confidential, but um, you know we we are very active in the space. We're very focused on the space, um, and again, not just deals that maybe uh, might work. And again, might work where if, if a deal fits for Arcadia, where that could fit them as a tenant. Again, that's that's their decision. It's just a completely separate entity. Um, you know, there, there's opportunities there, but we are also investigating on a, you know also opportunities to do built-to-suits for other tenants that we might be speaking to on the directly site. because again, a number of these assets. Um, while we might lease space to a 3PL like an Arcadia, we are taking speculative risks at times, at t- sometimes in these assets, you know, to the tune of one to 200,000 square feet, um, where we're out there directly looking for, like I mentioned, like these Amazons or targets that might need some extra space, right? So um, sometimes we might come across clients in that space that say, hey, that's great, you got 100,000 square feet, I need 300, you guys um, are obviously capable to build, do you want to build this for me? Um, so we we are we are multifaceted to able to do that um, um, on multiple fronts. So it is a big focus for us. Again, it's very straightforward of why the demand's there. We love to stick in lanes where the demand is obvious, and um, you know, for our investors, typically on the real estate side, the way to invest is we have a number of unique uh, GP investment vehicles where we're raising. You know, Saxum is. And over time, we've raised a couple hundred million dollars of ultra high net worth capital, which is similar to obviously the audience that, that you speak to actively, but we've raised about three to 400 million of institutional capital as well. So one thing we do that is unique: provide opportunities for ultra high, high net worth investors to invest on the GP side of some of our investments. And a number of those um, are actually in some of these cold storage deals. Um, not all of them, but ones where there's opportunities to have a GP component. Um, we, we will look at that and we have, uh, you know, we have um you know a lot of GP fund that we're working on right now that that basically part, you know partakes in that. so you know that's how we look at it, and uh, you know that's how we look at uh, giving our investors exposure on the uh, cold storage front
0: where Where does cold storage fit typically, would you say, on the risk return spectrum uh, wh- What are some of the risks associated with cold storage? How do you assess those risks and and what kind of returns are you targeting over what? Investment period.
1: Sure thing. So typically, again, you're talking development returns. You know, you know, and it depends on time horizons important on that. Mm-hmm. But you're really trying to target returns really between the two two and a half x to based on you know hold periods, which you're getting mid to high teens type IRRs. Again, these are development deals. So they that's not arguably too different on the real estate side. Where if I was doing a development multifamily deal, thing, high teens, low double, you know, low twenties potentially IRRs. Um, on the project level and then that, you know, not net to investors, not too far from there, you know, similar. Um, So that's really, you know, how we look at it on the real estate side. Again, we're building new development construction. Um, You know, again, it's, you know, it's typically uh, pretty straightforward. When you think of risk, that's where it really also becomes interesting because again, as an investor, as an astute investor, you never want to look at an absolute return to judge investments you know, that's what a sharp ratio is, is when you judge an investment based on its risk adjusted return, what's the risk that asset can go to zero versus a 5X versus a 2X, right? So those are things investors should always look at. And one of the things, and I I think I, I missed this point earlier when we started to really look at cold storage or why we liked it, is when you start to look at cold storage as an asset class, very low vacancy rates, partially driven because of low supply, but also demand. But when you look at the 3PL side and you understand those client mixes, during um, COVID, if you go back to even Americola lineage, Acadia, uh, uh, companies like AgroMerchants, when Chris Hughes was running AgroMerchants, they had almost zero layoffs during the Great Recession. Zero. Those buildings stayed full. Now, whether there maybe some pricing pressures here or there? Sure, like any business. But in general, they kept all their occupancies. Pricing was, was fairly fairly stable. And the reason why that happened is just the mix of their product they were storing just changed some. And to understand, to, to, to explain that a little more to to our audience, think of when a recession happens, less people go out to eat. They order more food from home, right? And when you start to think of dynamics like that, it changes the type of food and the type of amount of food that needs to be stored, stored based on the actual um, uh, distributors um, that's fulfilling that demand. So cold storage is, I would argue, one of the most recession-resistant businesses out there to play in, um, uh, from the demand and supply reasons we mentioned, but also because of the ability to to push along uh, you know, pricing power.
0: So we're running low on time here. I think we're uh, winding down the interview, but I wanted to talk more about that third-party logistics firm that you mentioned that you're partnering with, uh, Arcadia. What's, what's the vision for Arcadia's growth and market footprint going forward here?
1: Sure thing. I mean, Arcadia again. Chris Hughes has done this before. He's put together an amazing team um, to basically build a, a first-class national, multinodal logistics uh, company that's at the heart of the supply chain. That's really focused on client, um, really client services, putting the client first. Um, very in touch. We're not trying to become some massive conglomerate. It's really, you know, to build, um, you know, double-digit facilities uh, into lease again. Arcadia's known assets; they're they're really tenants but to really lease these assets uh, on a national scale. And what's really unique, it's to be one of the only national networks of new construction and in, in the industrial term for that is greenfield. It's greenfield buildings on a national scale. So, you know, again, Chris Hughes, you know, drives really the strategy on that side of the equation. Um, that is their strategy. That is their focus. They're, they're heavily involved in, in procuring existing relationships and creating new ones on a national scale. And really to just quantify for you, back to my, uh, my car dealership, the family office example is this, um, Arcadia, uh, between the leases that we're, we're aware that they're signing, they will have about a million and a half square feet of leasehold interest by Q1 of next year. Just with a million, million and a half square feet of leasehold interest, Arcadia will be the seventh largest operator of cold storage as a 3PL in the nation. And that's what's wild right? Because you're talking about, again, the 85%, the big three, it doesn't take much to be in the top 10. Hmm. And to me, that kind of just blows my mind because we're talking about food. Food is one of the most mission critical assets in our nation with the highest utility you could think of next to housing. So how can that asset class not be more tapped arguably, right? And like, and again, the analogy is these used car dealership, a large amount of that market are these smaller, Assets over time, so it is so unique when you really look at the opportunity set to really institutionalize the cold chain with um, through you know best in class assets with the best in class management team. So that that's really the vision for Arcadia is to grow to a national platform and really execute on on all levels here. So it's really unique.
0: Well, Chad, this has been uh, amazing. Really great learning about the cold storage industry a lot more during today's episode, and great learning about what Saxum. doing in that industry. Thanks so much for sharing your insights. Before we go, where can our audience of high net worth investors and advisors go to learn more about you and Saxum?
1: Sure. Saxum Real Estate, just go right to our website. It's uh, www.saxumre.com. And then Arcadia, same thing. Just look up uh, www.arcadiacold.com. You could could see the existing Arcadia's existing portfolios there. You could see all the leadership and management of Arcadia, including Chris Hughes is all there. You can take a look at some of these buildings, um, which are, again, just fascinating. Uh, Just to, again, one last thing I'd say to quantify that, you took about a 400,000 square foot building, and you really look at that, it's like six to seven football fields of area. So again, when you think of the supply chain and how mission critical is uh, to us as a country, it's, again, it's extremely interesting.
0: Yeah, it's a big building and uh, a lot more of them need to be built over the next few years, it sounds like. Uh, I'll be sure to link to the Arcadia website and to Saxum's real estate website as well, in the show notes, which will be available on our website as always at opportunitydb.com slash podcast. We'll have links to all the resources that Chad and I discussed on today's show. And please be sure to subscribe to us on YouTube or your favorite podcast listening platform to always get the latest episodes. Chad, again, thanks so much for joining me today. Really appreciate your time.
1: Appreciate you, Jenny. Thank you.
0: That's it for today's show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a rating and review to help spread the word to other investors. And we'll be back soon with another episode.